Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everyone. My name is Chris Barrett. I'm a professor at Cornell University, and it's my great pleasure to welcome you today to our webinar on using big data and machine learning to predict poverty and malnutrition for targeting, mapping, monitoring, and early warning. This is a joint activity by the Food Security Portal facilitated by the International Food Policy Research Institute, IFPRI, and supported by the European Commission and of the research project Harnessing Big Data and Machine Learning to Feed the Future, run out of Cornell University and funded by the United States Agency for International Development, USAID, with financial support also from the CGIAR Research Program on Policies, Institutions, and Markets. In this project, we combine the latest advances in satellite vegetation remote sensing and physical measurement with other publicly available data processed using accessible machine learning techniques to explore the potential to provide accurate, timely, and lower cost monitoring of key feed the future outcome indicators, such as asset poverty and nutritional status at the subnational community level in low income feed the future countries. The resulting indicators enable higher frequency monitoring and adaptive targeting, as well as careful impact evaluation of feed the future and other interventions when combined with rigorous research design around project or program participation. Last week, we hosted a webinar that discussed some of the new Earth Observation data products generating by the project, in particular by the labs of Professors Li Shu Hu of the University of Alabama at Huntsville and Professor Ying Sun of Cornell University. A recording of that webinar is available on the Food Security Portal hosted by IFPRI and on the project website at Cornell which Mirabulu Mala will present at the end of today's webinar. Today, we have three outstanding speakers. Dr. Lyndon McBride, who was formerly with St. Mary's College and now is with the U.S. Census Bureau Center for Economic Studies. Dr. Yanyan Liu from IFPRI and Chris Brown of Cornell University, as well as a distinguished discussant, Dr. Rob Voss, Director of the Markets, Trade, and Institutions Division at IFPRI. They will discuss advances in the use of earth observation data and machine learning data science methods to improve monitoring, mapping, and now casting of various indicators used by the U.S. government to feed the future program and other development and humanitarian agencies. At the end of today's session, Meda Bulumalo of Cornell will walk us through the research project website and the annotated Python R and Stata code that users can find there and that they can adapt for their own use of these methods. So if you have questions today, please feel free to submit them in the side panel at any time where it says questions box. I will read them during the Q&A session that will follow the discussant's remarks. And please note that this webinar will be recorded. The slides and recording of the session will be posted on the Food Security Portal's website and on the Cornell Project website. I will introduce each speaker as they come in. To begin, I'm pleased to introduce our first presenter, Dr. Lyndon McBride, who will provide an overview of the topic and a review of current frontiers in the application of big data and machine learning methods to development and humanitarian programming. Over to you, Lyndon. Thanks so much, Chris, and good morning, everyone. Thanks for joining us so early. Uh, this paper is titled Predicting Poverty and Malnutrition for Targeting, Mapping, Monitoring, and Early Warning, and I'm thrilled to announce that it was just published in Applied Economics Perspectives and Policy. Uh, next slide, please.
All right, in this paper, we begin with the question, can big data and machine learning revolutionize poverty and malnutrition mapping, targeting, monitoring, and evaluation and forecasting? And the answer is, is yes. However, we want to encourage uh, agencies that rely on these methods, as well as model and tool and map developers to think carefully about the, the trade-offs inherent in the inputs and, and outputs to these, to these methods. Um, in particular, we emphasize in this paper that agencies' needs vary. The temptation with machine learning and big data is to uh, take all the data, pour it into the right-hand side of the model, and um, get the best prediction possible, but that's not necessarily what, what agencies need. It's not necessarily the most cost-efficient. It's not necessarily the most effective at uh, capturing different types of, of deprivation. So we emphasize that both agencies and developers should consider the purpose and the use case of the tool that they're developing. And we, we encourage this thoughtful consideration by emphasizing a, a, a set of questions or trade-offs um, that both should go through. So in particular, we asked what type of deprivation is, is, is being investigated? What is the time horizon for the model? Are we trying to predict contemporaneously? Are we trying to now cast? Are we trying to forecast? Uh, how transparent and accessible to the general public does the final model need to be? There can be political economy considerations behind a given map, tool, or method. How onerous and, and consequently how costly is the data collection and curation task? Um, in some cases, we want a map that can be uh, a map or a, a tool that can be readily updated. Uh, in that case, we, we need to carefully consider the, the, the cost of the inputs. Um, and these questions amount to what Zua et al. articulate as the agency's objective function. So throughout this paper, we try to stay focused on that. Next slide, please. So we encourage practitioners and model developers to fit their tools to the explicit tasks. And then we express that through a, a series of, of considerations. Is the tool intended to target households or is it entire, in, intended to develop a map? Whereas targeting identifies poor, malnutrition, uh, malnourished people or households, a map is um, intended to, to provide a, a geographic depiction of deprivation. Uh, we also note that there's tension between the acid-based theory and empirics of poverty traps. Uh, we know that uh, structural property uh, follows acid dynamics. However, the temptation in uh, machine learning and big data is to just obtain the most predictive feature set, uh, which doesn't necessarily always rely on these key acid variables. So we highlight this tension between structural and stochastic uh, forms of deprivation. In addition, we encourage uh, agencies and model developers to carefully consider whether they're interested in a static or a dynamic model, whereas most of these models are static, predicting uh, poverty or deprivation in, in the next period or even contemporaneously. If we're interested in early warning, then we might be more interested in changes over time, which is a different task altogether and requires uh, different inputs. 
Finally, we highlight some of the uh, data needs for improved mapping, monitoring, targeting, and early warning. Next slide, please. All right, the innovations in poverty targeting have tended towards uh, leaner and leaner models. And this is um, very cost efficient for agencies that, that use these targeting models. So the scorecard approach, which was pioneered by Mark Schreiner and further developed by Krishagar and others, uses proxy means test, um, sorry, uses machine learning for dimension reduction and to get a highly predictive feature set, and then validates this using out-of-sample testing. Uh, additional innovations in this field are Nippenberg et al. using high-frequency data, and Altendog, who very cleverly use administrative data to develop their proxy means test targeting tool, which saves agencies a, a great deal of money uh, in terms of initial data collection. Next slide, please. All right, on the mapping front, the trend is in the other direction. Whereas with targeting, we're interested in leaner and leaner um, models and uh, you know, innovations that draw on lean data. With mapping, the trend is to, to draw on more and more and more diverse um, data sources. Uh, so some of the, the exciting developments in this region are um, Bloomstock et al. His lab is using uh, call data records. Uh, to really innovate, um, actually both poverty targeting and mapping. Um, the use of night lights, daytime satellite imagery, NDVI, and other remotely sensed data. And uh, those who attended the webinar uh, last week will have gotten an introduction to um, SIF and LST. Uh, the combination of data sources, uh, like I mentioned, for more productive or more um, accurate uh, mapping models. And also looking at a combination of outputs. This might include the multi-dimensional poverty index um, as produced, uh, a map that was produced by Pokira and Jack and Nguna and McSherry. And in the paper that Chris Bound will cover, the multivariate prediction of correlated outcomes. Uh, if we have an inkling that poverty and malnutrition are correlated, can we harness those correlations for better predictions? And then finally, Hirsch et al. Um, have really emphasized that, that open source data is um, important for, for agencies' mapping efforts. Next slide, please. All right, some of the frontiers here that haven't um, quite been tackled is uh, better targeting or in mapping the multidimensional nature of deprivation. And again, we'll hear um, Chris Brown's paper uh, shortly, which makes a step in this direction. Better predicting low probability and noisy outcomes such as stunting and wasting. Because these are low probability and tend to be measured with, with noise, they're, they're much more difficult to predict, but also getting accurate predictions is extremely important. Uh, we are confronted by limited data availability, especially for the populations that are most vulnerable. Uh, data like um, call data records or night lights tend to give us better information about uh, relatively wealthier households. Uh, whereas if we're interested in the poorest of the poor, uh, these exciting new data sets might not give us as much information on those populations as we would like. And then finally, a next step in this area 
is not just targeting and mapping uh, deprivation, but also identifying the determinants of the deprivation. Uh, and yay, it all take a, a important step in this direction. Next slide, please. All right, the next series of trade-offs we emphasize is identifying structural versus stochastic deprivation. Now, the exciting thing is that recent mapping models are doing really well in predicting asset poverty across space and over time. Uh, and I, I think um, that will continue to develop. Each new paper that comes out um, offers you know, higher predictive accuracy, which is very exciting. Uh, some of the frontiers in this field are better parsing the persistently poor, the, the structural poor, from the dynamically mobile. Uh, another way of saying this is better mapping the, the well-being dynamics behind um, uh, the deprivation that we observe. Uh, an exciting innovation and frontier in this field is the notion of, of resilience targeting and resilience mapping, uh, as pioneered by Barrett and Constas and uh, C. Saint Barrett. Uh, next slide, please. The next series of trade-offs we consider are static versus dynamic targeting, mapping, early warning, and et cetera. Uh, the, the idea here is that most of the models that, that um, are available most of the models we develop tend to be static. We're predicting uh, levels in some uh, geographic area or in some future time period. Whereas if we're interested in early warning, we might be more interested in changes over time. So some of the exciting innovations in this field have been pioneered by Mude et al. and Lens et al. using high-frequency data. They're able to develop uh, food security early warning systems. Tang et al. and Ye et al. also demonstrate that the use of convolutional neural networks trained on changes over time rather than, than levels can predict changes in future consumption or asset wealth. And then Brown et al. in, in the paper he'll discuss produces both contemporaneous and sequential prediction of correlated asset, um, asset wealth and malnutrition indicators. Next slide, please. Some of the frontiers in this field, uh, or rather this first bullet point is how we might tackle some of these frontiers, is uh, accessing more high frequency data. Uh, again, if we shift our, our focus from the prediction of, of levels to the prediction of changes, uh, I think we can make progress in this field. And then finally, integrating time series statistics with machine learning methods could be a really promising uh, way forward. Next slide, please. Finally, it's probably not news to this audience that there is a serious undersupply of the global public good of the collection, standardization, updating and open access of uh, curation of cute variables, such as, for example, household level assets. And that, that poses a challenge um, to the use of big data and machine learning for, um, for these, these um, development of these tools. Our, our models are only as good as the, the data that feed, feed into them. 
Another constraint we're confronted with is that we can only reliably predict states and processes that have been previously observed in the data, which is to say as uh, climate change changes the data generating process, our models are gonna do a poor and poorer job of anticipating what's to come. The good news is, the silver linings, I suppose, is that COVID has likely accelerated trends towards more creative uh, data collection. Bloomstock has a nice nature article on this, just highlighting the, the creativity we've had to embrace um, to collect household level, individual level data in the face of um, limited social interaction. Next slide, please. All right, so in summary, it's, it's very exciting. Big data machine learning methods are revolutionizing what we can do in terms of mapping, targeting, uh, monitoring and early warning, uh, monitoring evaluation and early warning. However, we really encourage thoughtful consideration of the purpose and use cases of, of whatever is being developed. Um, data availability and creation may remain serious limitations. This was just a, a, a quick overview um, for more details. Uh, check out the full article that's available at Applied Economics Perspectives and Policy. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Lyndon, for a terrific presentation. I hope people will go over to the journal website and, and take a look at the full paper. As a reminder to our audience, if you have questions for Lyndon or for any of our speakers today, please feel free to submit them in the side panel where you see a questions box. Uh, I will read those later during the Q&A session. Next, we move over to our second presenter, Dr. Yanyan Liu, who will present a very specific application of these methods. Dr. Liu is at IFPRI and is an adjunct faculty member at Cornell. Over to you, Yanyan. Thank you, Chris and Linton, for your excellent uh, presentation. Uh, uh, so the paper I'm presenting is a joint work with Bing Tang and David Madison, who is also in this seminar. Um, in this paper, we use the vegetation index and DVI for poverty prediction. As Linton just presented, recent advances in remote sensing and machine learning technologies has opened up a new path for poverty prediction. Uh, Jin Yitao and Ye Yitao are the two papers particularly relevant to our study. Jin Yitao is a seminal paper that uses static Google images and nightlights data to predict consumption expenditure and asset index at the community level. Ye Yitao uh, uses dynamic Google images to predict asset index both over space and over time, also at the community level. For uh, forgot to mention, Jin Yitao only focused, didn't do overtime prediction or sequential forecast prediction. Uh, there are two key limitations of using Google Images data, both uh, poverty prediction. First of all, Google Images cannot capture crop and rangeland conditions. This results in poor predictive performance among the very poor communities that rely heavily on agriculture as the main income source. As we know, in a lot of cases, people we are actually more uh, care more about the poor communities than the richer ones. 
second of all, Google images change slowly over time. This results in uh, poor performance for sequential prediction. For example, in Ye Yitao, when they uh, try to predict uh, 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 a future uh, future period eyesight index R squares at the community level, the R squares is only 0.15. Uh, our study uh, leveraged the NDVI at 250 meter resolution to estimate the consumption expenditure and eyesight index at the community level, both over space and over time. NDVI provides a signal for crop health and rangeland conditions. Different from Google Images, NDVI is fast changing and correlated with well-being among the very poor. Methodologically, we follow Jin Yitao uh, to rely on CNNs and transfer learning using the NightLife data as intermediate lab lab labels. Uh, we have two uh, key findings uh, in the overspace prediction. Uh, the overall predictive power of our NDVI based model, <coughs> sorry, is comparable to Google image based model. However, our NDVI based model outperformed Google image based model in predictive performance among the poorer clusters. Uh, when we do a uh, sequential prediction, we uh, predict the consumption expenditure for an out-of-sample period in Uganda and find that NDVI can effectively detect consumption variation over time among the poor communities. We made three contributions. First, we demonstrate that with CNN's publicly available moderate resolution NDVI images alone can predict poverty environments as accurately as state-of-art methods using Google's high-resolution images with more than 4,000 features. Second, our model improves predictive accuracy among the poorest rural communities. To our knowledge, our study is the first attempt to predict future period consumption expenditure. Sequential uh, prediction of consumption is especially meaningful for early warning because consumption captures current poverty as Linden's paper has uh, explained. In the remainder of the presentation, I'm talking about uh, the data and then the method, the result, and uh, concludes. So data first, uh, our response variables are two uh, poverty measures. The first one is consumption expenditure per capita at the community level from living standards measurement studies. Uh, it's a current poverty measure and uh, we use the four countries, Malawi, Nigeria, Tanzania, Uganda. Uh, for I the second measure is the eyesight index with a chronic poverty measure. Uh, it's also at cluster level from demographic and health service. We have five African countries. Uh, we have two uh, predictors used in this NDVI based model. One is annual NDVI images, the other is nightlife data, which is used as intermediate labels for transfer learning. We also use Google daytime images only for comparison with our NDVI based model. So our NDVI based model actually only uses those first two uh, data sites, not the third one. Uh, this picture shows uh, 
uh, NDVI in 2010, annual NDVI, and this area is uh, the areas with high NDVI values. And uh, this figure shows night lights in 2010 uh, for the whole world. Night lights are considered a proxy for economic activities and development. So we have more development area, United States, which has high light intensity, and the dark area in less development uh, economies shows in this area, for example. Uh, this figure shows an uh, example of daylight, daytime satellite images from Google. This is location in Uganda. Then I'll briefly talk about the method. Uh, we use CNNs and transfer learning following a two-step procedure to bypass a lack of labeled responses. In the first step, we fine-tune a VGG16 network in NDVI images to predict night light intensities in order to attract the NDVI features. In the second step, we fit random forest models using these NDVI features to predict consumption and eyesight at the cluster level. The combination of NDVI images and night lights allows vegetation features indicative of economic activities to be learned and generalized to the poverty prediction task. Next, I'll present uh, the results. Uh, we I'll talk about the overspace prediction first. Uh, in this analysis, we use cross-sectional data for individual countries. Uh, the results for uh, uh, for response variable as uh, the consumption expenditure presented in this table, uh, we showed the cross-validated R-squares of NDVI versus a Google image-based model. So we can see that NDVI has a comparable uh, performance in prediction power uh, between uh, as images in two countries, Tanzania and Uganda, and DVI did slightly better, and the other two uh, Google images did slightly better. Here we look at eyesight, the same uh, analysis. Uh, this uh, table again shows R-squares for the NDVI and uh, Google Images. Again, NDVI outperforms Google Images in three countries, uh, which are Nigeria, uh, Tanzania, and uh, Uganda. And in the other countries, Malawi and uh, uh, Rwanda, Google Images did slightly better. Uh, now we come to our uh, first main results. Uh, in this analysis, we look at uh, predictive performance by poverty level. Uh, we uh, run the regression for separate uh, samples uh, based on their poverty status. In this figure, uh, the x-axis shows the percentage of poorest communities included in this sample. For example, the safety means uh, we have the community, the communities below the 60% six, of consumption are included in this sample. Uh, the y-axis shows R-squares. We can see that, oh, sorry, I forgot to mention the uh, green curve 
is NDVI prediction value, and also the, the uh, orange lines is based on the Google image model. We can see overall Google image model and, uh, uh, and uh, the NDVI has similar performance. However, among those poorer communities, uh, NDVI did better than Google images consistently. Now we look at eyesight index as the response variable. Uh, here we did the same analysis and uh, we can see that NDVI based model performed consistently better than Google image based model among all of those communities and especially NDVI's advantage is more pronounced among the poorer communities here. Our next uh, result is on prediction over time. Uh, here we use 209 communities in Uganda surveyed in two rounds, 2011 and 2013. So this data forms the panel at the household level and uh, community level. We train the random forest model on the 2011 NDVI feature maps and test the model on the updated NDVI features in 2013. Uh, the 2011 and 2012 is a severe drought year. Uh, this drought has affected a large area in Uganda. Uh, this figure shows NDVI measures for Uganda from 2007 to 2014. The gray area highlights the two drought years. And we can see the drought has effect has been picked up by NDVI. We have sharp drops in those two years. So this figure shows consumption expenditure results uh, from the sequential prediction. Uh, here we focus on look at the uh, upper panel first, and uh, we uh, rank the communities based on their poverty status in 2011. So zero is the uh, shows the poorest community, and uh, 208 is the richest community based on 2011 consumption expenditure. Uh, the uh, Orange, sorry, the uh, y-axis shows low consumption and the uh, uh, orange line is the 2011 consumption level shows. The uh, green bar, green columns shows the consumption level in 2013 second round. We see that there's a lot of uh, variation in consumption over time. This is more variation is more pronounced among the poor communities. Uh, 2011 had significantly lower consumption levels because of the drought. And the green, the yellow, sorry, the blue curve plots the predicted consumption level using our NDVI based model. We can see that it uh, captures the variation of consumption over time. So here we compare, look at the performance of our NDVI model. Uh, again, we look at the poorest percentage of surveyed community used uh, for different levels. And also the y-axis is uh, RMSE, which is, uh, measures the prediction error. So the smaller, the better. 
our uh, blue curve shows the predicted power, uh, predicted value of consumption, uh, predicted error of uh, our NDVI model, and the orange line is uh, uh, shows the naive model. So basically, uh, the orange line is 2011 consumption level. So basically, uh, using 2011 consumption as a predicted consumption level for 2013. We see, interestingly, this naive model performs similarly as our NDVI-based model uh, for the whole sample overall. But if we look at the poor communities, our NDVI-based model is uh, shows much lower errors than the uh, naive model. Uh, we have two main findings. First of all, uh, uh, our prediction over space shows that overall predicted power of our NDVI model is comparable to Google Images. However, our NDVI model outperformed Google Images in predictive power among the poorer clusters. The sequential prediction shows that NDVI can effectively detect the consumption variation over time among the poor communities. There are three uh, policy takeaways. First of all, it's important to include predictors that can capture crop and rangeland conditions if we intend to capture poverty dynamics among the rural poor communities. This highlights the importance of careful selection of predictors to serve the study purpose. Uh, secondly, our study shows the potential to reduce the computational, computational dimension using alternative data sets without sacrificing uh, predictive power. This significantly lowers the technical bars for this kind of analysis. Also, it shows that advanced machine learning methods such as CNN combined with uh, a suitable data set can push forward the frontier of this, the research on poverty mapping, early warning, and uh, program impact evaluation. This highlights the importance of effective collaboration between economists, computer scientists, and remote sensing scientists. Let's uh, end. Thank you. Thank you very much, Yanyan, for presenting such exciting results. It's really cool to see how you can get much better performance among the poorest populations using some, uh, some, some more appropriate data series. So thank you for sharing that with us. As a reminder to our audience, if you have questions, please feel free to submit them in the side panel at any time where you find the questions box. And we'll read them, and the panelists will respond to them during the Q&A session. So next, our third presenter is Chris Brown. Chris is a PhD candidate in applied mathematics at Cornell University. He'll present another specific application of these big data methods to a range of countries for both now casting and contemporaneous poverty and malnutrition mapping. Over to you, Chris. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Chris, and I'm going to be just quickly going over a recent project that we worked on. Um, so this this project has been sort of tentatively or is in the final stages of being accepted to PLOS One. And given the time constraints, I'm trying to keep this presentation pretty light. But if you have questions, feel free to ask them. And if you want more details, you can kind of go and read the paper on PLOS One in the near future. Okay, next slide. 
Okay, so the very high level idea of this project is that we want to use machine learning to predict and estimate poverty and malnutrition and prevalence. <clears throat> and this can be useful to sort of both government and non-government agencies for a few reasons. Um, it can be used for early warning, so detection of maybe famine status. And then it can also be used to sort of evaluate where maybe food-based or you know financially-based interventions should be placed in a given country. And then to also assess how well those interventions are doing at reducing poverty or malnutrition. Um, so historically, the way that poverty and malnutrition prevalence is assessed by you know, agencies is uh, via surveys, right? So they kind of just manually send people to villages and ask them how they're doing. You can imagine that is sort of expensive and not particularly fast because you have to have people go to villages and walk around and ask people stuff. And so a sort of alternative that's become feasible in recent years is to potentially just use remote sense data. Um, so you can imagine you maybe just have a satellite that's getting you know, information about some location. And ideally you can combine that with some machine learning or statistical method to sort of infer the affluence of a particular region. Okay, next slide. Um, okay, so just to give you a quick overview of the data that we're using for this, um, we used open source data sort of motivated by the desire to make this accessible to people. Um, we have five different sort of outcomes that measure poverty prevalence and malnutrition prevalence. So asset poverty, child wasting, child stunting, underweight female BMI, uh, and another one. And so then for, and, and so yeah, I should just mention that these come from DHS surveys, right? And so then for our inputs, we use a few different data sources. Uh, we use meteorological and agricultural data. So SIF, CHIRPS, LST, these are all data products that are available that measure conditions uh, related to either you know, meteorology or agriculture, uh, conflict data, and then also sort of just like basic location data. So like where is a particular location, right? It's like what is its latitude and longitude? And then finally, we use the IFPRI derived market food price data. All right, next slide. <laughs> okay, so uh, as kind of mentioned earlier by Lyndon and, and uh, Yan Yan, so like state-of-the-art and related works in this field tend to use either deep learning and or deep transfer learning. And so one sort of goal of this project was to test whether or not um, it needs to be that way. So can we actually just use like maybe like easier to implement methods or just alternative methods that might be more interpretable to do this prediction? And then it's also very possible that the, the outcomes that we talked about on the last slide might be correlated with one another. So it's not inconceivable that asset poverty could be correlated with things like you know, child wasting, right? And so we also wanted to test whether or not a joint model could maybe improve prediction. Uh, and so in this paper, we use in particular a, multi, a joint or multivariate random forest. And a sort of nice um, boon from using that method is it also lets us sort of identify what features are sort of key to predict, predictive accuracy. All right, next slide. So the DHS surveys that we considered come from 11 different countries, partly in Africa, but also in like Central America and like Central Asia, I guess, like West Asia, I don't know. Um, and they come across about a decade of time. Um, one sort of annoying thing is that the food price data that we have is sort of country specific. So they track different commodities in different countries. Uh, because of that, we decided to do training and testing on a country-specific basis. So when we're making predictions for, say, Nepal, we only use data from Nepal to do that prediction. We don't use data from, say, Guatemala, right? And we considered two predictive tasks in the paper. The first is contemporaneous prediction. So the idea of that is to, like, let's say you have um, used surveys to generate estimates of poverty and malnutrition prevalence in certain locations. 
you might want to sort of extrapolate your estimates of poverty and malnutrition prevalence to other regions in your country that you did not survey, right? So you're kind of filling in the gaps spatially, but with time fixed. And then the second thing that we considered is called now casting. So this is generating short-term forecasts of prevalence using so historical survey data and then like present remote sense data. So you'll have surveys from the past along with like the current uh, inputs to your model and you'll be trying to generate short-term estimates. Okay, uh, next slide. So I, I put this picture here just to give you kind of a visual uh, idea of a, you know, what predictions for a model can look like, and then B, the difference between contemporaneous and sequent, uh, now casting. So I want you to imagine for a second that as like an administrator, you have surveyed all of the locations that are purple dots, right? So you sent people to the villages in those purple dots and you got estimates of poverty and malnutrition. So then for contemporaneous prediction, you might be interested in filling in the northern part of the country, right? Based on your surveys in the, in the bottom of it. Uh, the reason why there's like gaps in our prediction is because there are gaps in our underlying features. And then for sequential prediction or for now casting, sorry, I kind of variably refer to this as sequential now casting. So for now casting, you can imagine, so you've surveyed these purple dots and now you want to either generate short-term forecasts for the purple dots, the so locations you've already surveyed, or like areas that you haven't, so areas in the north. You can do either one with the now casting. Okay, uh, next slide. Okay, so maybe this slide's overkill, but we decided to measure accuracy via out of sample R squared. And then we use a slightly different metric than what is traditional. We use root mean squared error, but we normalize it by the observed prevalence range. So what this kind of gives you an indication of is like, if you look at your average residual, um, sort of what percent of the range of the indicator does that cover? So if that number is small, it means that relative to the dispersion of the prevalence range itself, you're like pretty accurate if it's large or not. Um, and then th this will be somewhat relevant. So when we were assessing the accuracy of our model, we considered three different sort of frameworks. In the first one, we pooled all of our predictions across every single survey into one big bin and computed these metrics. We also did this at a country specific level. So for all surveys within each country. And then finally, we also report just like our performance on each individual survey. And there are differences in uh, sort of our results at these three different levels of aggregation. All right, next slide. Um, so just, you know, I'm not gonna really like go into the full predictive uh, results just so that we don't really have time. So one of the big takeaways is that unsurprisingly contemporaneous prediction is easier than now casting. Uh, with now casting, you're kind of predicting shortly into the future. It's harder to do than predicting like, you know, contemporaneously, right? Um, consistent with other work, asset poverty is a lot easier to predict than malnutrition prevalence. So this indicates to me that it just means that like we don't have good data for uncovering the dynamics of malnutrition prevalence. So that's maybe something people could think about is like what kind of data could we collect that would make this easier. Um, and sort of the, the key takeaway I think that we found in this paper is that both joint and independent random forests actually do about as well as sort of the deep and transfer learning models for prevalence prediction, but only when those results are assessed in aggregate or at country specific levels. And what we did find is that these methods do worse relative to deep learning and transfer learning at sort of what we term like early survey levels. So surveys that happen like early in time, let's say like 2003, 2004. The reason for this is due to small sample size. So if we have small sample data, if we have small data, the random forests do um, worse than the transfer learning methods because they are sort of less reliant on sample size. All right, next slide. And so I put this in just to kind of like make that last point more clear. So these are um, 
now casting results at the individual survey level. So each dot is like, what was our out of sample R squared for that particular survey? And there are five dots because there are five outcomes. The x-axis is survey size, the y-axis is R squared. I want to emphasize these are actually our worst results in the paper, but I just wanted to include them because they're most visually demonstrative. And so you can see like, as a function of the survey size, when you have a very small survey size, sometimes this, this model does very, very poorly, right? You get like very low R squared. Um, but you know, once the survey size gets above like 600, 700, you stop seeing that occur. And in general, you start to like get consistently acceptable or higher R squared values out of sample. Uh, and also you can also note that asset poverty, the red dot, generally the highest one, right? On each um, line, right? Okay, uh, next slide. Um, okay, so let me, sorry, I need to move something. Okay, sorry about that. So yeah, the, the sort of exact performance of our model varied quite a bit based on prediction regime, so contemporaneous or now casting, how we pooled the data and the exact target outcome. Uh, but one thing that was kind of interesting that we found is pretty much regardless of those things, our normalized root mean squared error was pretty low. So it's generally on the order of 10 to 20% of the observed indicator range. And so what that implies is like for a first pass, this, this method seems to actually pretty consistently generate what we call tolerably accurate estimates of poverty and malnutrition prevalence in the sense that if you were like an administrator or something, using these methods would like give you a qualitatively reasonably accurate understanding of the poverty and malnutrition prevalence in a region, pretty much regardless of um, you know, again, like contemporaneous prediction versus now casting and like how you pooled your data. Um, we also found that, so joint prediction did kind of help a little bit. So mainly in the now casting framework, it sort of produced slightly better estimates of some of our prevalence rates. So it's like a potential thing that I think people could investigate further. Um, it wasn't huge, it wasn't a huge difference, but it did seem to give some uh, predictive power, right? Okay, next slide. Uh, and so then the last thing I wanted to talk about, we, we mentioned earlier that using the random forest lets us kind of assess variable importance. So the y-axis, you can just interpret as like how important is this variable? Uh, the highest, the y-axis could be as one, which would mean like this was the only feature that mattered for this model. Um, what you can see immediately from this, and I'll talk about this a little bit more on the next slide, but what you can see immediately from this is that as far as our model is concerned, the most important thing for, for doing estimation is actually where in space um, a given location is, and basically like, is it a rural region, right? Uh, these sort of like higher, I don't know, variability um, variables like vegetation and weather data were also relatively important, but the bulk of the work here is being done by location remoteness data. Um, that causes some problems, I think, in terms of like people being satisfied with these results maybe, like, uh, I'll, I'll talk about this a little bit more on the next slide. So yeah, let's, let's go to the next slide. Um, so yeah, like basically location data is the most useful. I think the reason why people might find this a little bit dissatisfying is it's a sort of non-causal description of the underlying dynamics of poverty and malnutrition prevalence. Uh, that being said, it's just like really effective. So for short to medium term time horizons, this seems like a really useful way to predict this. And I should emphasize that like, this is basically the model just saying like, I know in space where the poverty is. And so I assume kind of that there's spatial correlation in poverty rates and malnutrition rates. Um, 
you can imagine that that will work a bit less well in heterogeneous areas. So if there are actually areas where poor and relatively wealthy communities are sort of intermixed, this model might do worse. Um, and you can also imagine it could sort of fail to extrapolate properly in certain cases. Um, but again, like other data was useful, specifically the meteorological and agricultural data. And I think the food price data could have been more useful. So because, like I said earlier, the actual uh, quantities that were tracked by IFPRI varied across countries, um, I don't know, like it wasn't always standard even within a particular country. Also, I don't think that there was very good overlap between the market locations and the survey locations for DHS. So like, I think that the food price data could be a lot more useful, but it might need to, like its, its collection might need to be somehow altered to be made more useful. So better coverage of markets um, and like consistent collection basically. Okay, next slide. So that's basically it, um, you know, just sort of bring it home. Like it seems like the, the random forest models with our data set, the open source data can generate relatively accurate estimates. So tolerably accurate estimates. Um, and again, like these estimates are basically on par with state of the art for particular frameworks. So when we have a lot of data, but they don't do as well in small data sets. Um, I think one, conclusion to be drawn from this is that like even though we would like to sort of remove surveys entirely and just use remote sensing we're kind of not there yet these things need to keep on being done for a little while and so yeah joint estimation could be helpful and a contemporaneous um, prediction of asset poverty is sort of the easiest task okay thanks thanks very much chris for a really interesting presentation and again, as a reminder to our audience, if you have questions, please feel free to submit them in the side panel at any time where it says questions box. And I'll come to those during the Q&A session. But first, we're gonna to get to hear from our discussant, Dr. Rob Voss. Rob is the Director of the Markets, Trade, and Institutions Division at IFPRI, under which the Food Security Portal sits. Over to you, Rob. Thanks, uh, Chris, and thanks to all the presenters. This, this is really exciting new research, I would say probably path-breaking new, new research that's a clear response to our needs for getting more timely data on poverty, food security, malnutrition, particularly understanding the risk and vulnerability factors causing these outcomes. And uh, as uh, several of the speakers pointed out, so now we're pretty much reliant on pretty costly survey data, which uh, doesn't uh, come with uh, um, with sufficient timeliness um, and uh, maybe also uh, uh, pretty much behind the realities that we need to address. So, for instance, uh, the recent publications uh, of uh, uh, the impacts of COVID-19, global poverty and food security, for instance, um, they're all just basically based on projections or very case-based um, uh, observed data. Um, we have uh, the, the new studies from uh, the FEO and other organizations on the state of food security and malnutrition in the world, uh, estimating that uh, food insecurity is on the rise and hunger is on, on the rise, but basically based on pretty much indirect methods of, of estimating um, what the, uh, including the impact of COVID-19 has been. So we really need uh, better early warning systems uh, to be able to respond timely and in a well-targeted uh, manner. So uh, 
in that sense, uh, all the papers present uh, quite a bit of progress towards something that could lead to uh, call it real-time monitoring of poverty and, um, and malnutrition. Now, before getting to the um, various papers specifically, um, I would uh, uh, like to uh, commend uh, Lyndon, particularly Lyndon McBride, on asking the question, okay, what are the models actually supposed to measure and uh, what are they trying to do? Because I think that's essential to see whether this um, new work can lead to um, uh, applications that are also policy relevant. That's in the end what we would like to uh, see happen. So I think it's very important to, to raise the question of what precise poverty concepts we use, uh, what food security concept and several uh, have been mentioned uh, and across the papers, uh, different um, uh, concepts have been used. Now, maybe it's, it's a comment on, on Linden's uh, uh, paper and presentation is um, uh, how do these concepts link to what policymakers are looking at? Um, so uh, policymakers in where it comes to food insecurity, um, they either look at acute food insecurity, that's a concept particularly in use of, um, for the food crisis and for instance, the global report on food crisis and a lot of the early warnings uh, mechanisms are focused on that uh, concept, which is different from the chronic concept, which is more standard in use for the um, uh, prevalence of undernourishment, for instance, or the food insecurity experience skills used by international organizations. So um, I would so, so recommend to translate some of the terminology that's being used um, uh, in the paper by, by Linden, but also in the other papers to those concepts. Likewise for structural versus transitory uh, poverty is another thing, uh, another set of concepts used in the um, in the literature on, on poverty. Um, <clears throat> so um, the concept used in, in Linda's paper is a bit closer to actually the methods that were used rather than the policy concept. So th that translation I think was uh, missing uh, either in the presentation and in the, in the paper. Um, second thing is how you would look at um, uh, other policies issues like mapping and targeting, uh, I think that's very clearly brought out in, in Lyndon's presentation. Um, but I would say in practice, um, there's not much, uh, I think the, the dichotomy is not so much between mapping and targeting, right? So it's a lot of targeting of policies, uh, poverty policies, uh, social policies is done through geographic targeting in the, in the past. And that's why also poverty maps have been designed for that, uh, that reason uh, way back in the uh, 1980s. So maybe that dichotomy is, uh, as put in, in the presentation, is, is useful from the perspective of the methodology, uh, but could be confusing uh, for, from a policy perspective. So uh, particularly so that the targeting can be done at geographic level, could be done through means testing at the individual levels. And uh, uh, so it's, it's sort of mapping of where people are and uh, what their economic status is um, uh, should be done uh, probably uh, both uh, and in, or, in order to uh, meet policy needs. So uh, another suggestion for refinement. Um, I think what, uh, what is um, 
uh, very interesting is the um, uh, yeah the, 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 the move forward to using uh, artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning. Um, so the, the question is, is well, what um, are we trying to um, predict? Um, and what is in the original data is properly observed data and what is um, uh, actually also partially statistically uh, or model uh, based. So, for instance, with the poverty maps in the observed data, just to get to, to very detailed or granular data of uh, locating the poor, um, uh, that in the past was done by uh, linking uh, population census data with household survey data, uh, and then get uh, through um, partial modeling exercises onto uh, estimating the degree of poverty at, uh, at um, uh, pretty granular. Uh, local uh, levels. But of course, uh, in between there, there's uh, some set of assumptions there. So it's very important to uh, make clear is whether the data that we're using, um, to what extent it's, uh, it's truly observed data, um, and to what extent it's, uh, it's constructed data uh, indirectly from uh, the um, uh, other types of uh, data sets. Um, and I mentioned that it's, it's very important to make sure that the methods and the measures are very clear, uh, clearly defined um, and transparent uh, for policymakers, but also for the beneficiaries. Um, and uh, <clears throat> let me come back to that uh, towards the end. So I think it's in summary on, on that point, it's very important to, to emphasize the issues that were raised in Lyndon's paper, but I think the um, missing element there is to translate uh, her conceptual approach to uh, from the methods uh, being used onto what policymakers use in terms of their uh, concepts. Um, <clears throat> then the papers by that present by Jan Jan and by Chris, uh, I think very excellent uh, papers, very interesting work in showing how we can get to um, uh, fairly good. Um, estimators or predictors uh, of uh, various uh, uh, poverty and uh, malnutrition concepts. Um, I just have a, a couple of questions there, which are <clears throat> again uh, of importance both to policymakers, but also in terms of the approach used. Um, the um, the one is it has to do with. Um, the implicit assumptions about what are the predictors. Um, so if we look at uh, <clears throat> the vegetation index study and the, the, the one applied by Chris, um, they seem to be um, more uh, applicable by, by, by assumption to, um, to subgroups of the poor, right? So Jan Jan mentioned the very poor, but it's also particularly apt for uh, agricultural and, and rural context. So the question is then, what does it mean for the, the method at large, particularly when um, we use vegetation as, as one predictor, uh, vegetation coverage as one predictor of these outcomes? Um, is that relevant uh, more across the board or just for when we're interested in a particular uh, subgroup uh, of the poor or the uh, malnourished? Um, then, um, uh, and more specifically, so if we look at, and that, that may be a related question, is what's the uh, implicit 
theory uh, or model behind uh, the predictive um, uh, model that you do lay out. So if we just look at the vegetation link, uh, what are we assuming is that because uh, lesser, <clears throat> less dense uh, vegetation could be um, a, a predictor of uh, 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 poor harvest or lesser agricultural productivity and hence uh, through that on poverty and on uh, malnutrition. So, so the question is, okay, what, what's the implicit thinking behind that and whether um, uh, if we just look at the this association with vegetation that we can explain sufficiently well uh, to inform uh, policymakers. Of course, likewise, if we would do the, the nightlight uh, density, uh, one would suspect, okay, that uh, you know, more density is associated with uh, greater development, uh, more infrastructure, but potentially also with less vegetation. So then the question is, well, if we both find that more dense vegetation and um, uh, uh, more dense uh, nightlights so would both be predictor of um, uh, of um, of less poverty. Then, um, uh, how would that uh, work uh, in practice? If if maybe there's um, uh, less uh, dense vegetation is associated with more urbanization uh, at the same time. Um, and I could raise a similar question on Chris's paper, which also was focused on agriculture, food prices, uh, and uh, conflict, which uh, which seems to be looking uh, at associations with uh, natural ideas, also found in, in the range of uh, more descriptive uh, studies uh, in the Global Report on Food Crisis, and so on. Uh, but still, it's important for uh, policymakers to um, identify why one select those uh, determinants uh, rather than uh, potential other uh, causal uh, risk factors. Um, <clears throat> and that uh, brings me to a broader point for the overall uh, approach. So, so I think this is enormous progress that we're making in trying to uh, predict uh, poverty levels. Uh, but the question is whether um, we should subsequently not much more focus on, okay, what are the uh, potential risk factors that drive to those uh, outcomes? Because um, what uh, policymakers can enact on are the, the risk factors, right? And, uh, and try to, um, particularly when it comes to more structural approaches to um, addressing these, these problems. So, um, shouldn't we also try and, and uh, predict, okay, how do these risk factors uh, change over time uh, and then on to uh, looking at the impacts uh, on poverty and uh, food security. Um, last year, that's more uh, well, um, um, a, um, a technical question uh, on the level of, of detail, particularly what, uh, what in Jan Jan's analysis and Chris's analysis who focus on, on the sample size of, of existing information. So first question is whether uh, the cluster level is a, a refined enough level to, to make these uh, predictions. Um, and also whether the um, information that we have on the dependent variable, uh, meaning poverty and uh, food insecurity, is sufficiently reliable at that level, uh, given the way the um, uh, the survey data uh, and the samples have been uh, designed. It also applies to Chris' data, maybe uh, Chris's observation on this this notion of samples. 
size that uh, I understand that if a smaller sample size gives you less observations, so hence uh, for the analysis undertaken, uh, less uh, variation. But a smaller sample size not always means uh, less accuracy in uh, the observations uh, that we're interested in. So it might be uh, also a suggestion to look beyond uh, not just at the sample size, but rather at the sampling errors that are uh, come out from the uh, survey data that are being used uh, to, as, uh, to estimate the, the dependent uh, variable. Um, so um, let me close with a few um, uh, um, remarks of what's the upshot of this. So, um, what and how to uh, move move further. Um, first, uh, I think uh, this is exciting work and can lead to um, more real-time and, uh, and more timely data for policy responses. Um, but at the same time, when we think of the uh, predictive value, value of these models for uh, poverty and food insecurity, um, then we also should take in, into account is that um, uh, even if Policymakers do not have uh, accurate data, they may still be enacting on a perceived policy problems. So we may also have uh, inter interdependency issues uh, with uh, policy responses that are not being accounted for when we just look at the uh, indicators uh, or the uh, explanatory variables uh, that um, we have been looking at. So uh, particularly, it's, it's important that um, we also look at uh, those variables, what is the policy context uh, and the response capacity in order to see to what extent the, the other variables that we can um, uh, and try to measure uh, more in real time uh, are not uh, in also um, influenced by these policy responses. Uh, a second uh, general comment is that uh, I think there's a, enormous future for this kind of work uh, also to inform uh, policymakers but um, at the same time given the uncertainties uh, we have also with what we can predict uh, now is uh, the need for um, better uh, observed data uh, to validate also these predictive uh, models uh, so what we know from the past may not be a good predictor of the future so we continuously have to uh, validate these models also because uh, conditions and uh, conditioning factors uh, may change over time. Um, the third point is, of course, when we think of predictive uh, uh, models, um, as it goes with um, uh, economic forecasting uh, more in general, uh, even what we know um, uh, works pretty well in in many cases our macroeconomic forecasting models in what we call normal times but those models typically get it all wrong when they're unexpected uh, shocks uh, so like COVID-19 but even many droughts can uh, um, uh, not be uh, that predicted um, uh, uh, well in advance uh, such that uh, we may still be falling behind uh, the curve with our model if we, uh, we cannot uh, properly monitor the risk factors uh, at hand. And then lastly, and uh, coming back to my uh, first points, it's very important that uh, we have uh, good concepts, but also transparent, um, particularly when uh, they're going to be used for policy responses or targeted uh, interventions uh, so that the um, identification or who are eligible 
for support measures, be it through uh, food assistance, social policies or other interventions that it's very clear is uh, why um, those groups are being uh, targeted and others not. So let me leave it at that. So I think it's uh, it's it's very important progress moving forward, but still uh, quite a uh, long way to go in order to get to uh, good real-time monitoring and predictive uh, models for food security and poverty. Over to you, Chris. Thanks. Thanks, Rob, for a really excellent summary of key issues raised by these three presentations and the underlying papers, and especially for connecting these relatively technical issues back to policymakers' needs. If I could now ask all of the speakers to please turn your cameras back on, it's time to open up for questions and answers, uh, both to Rob's discussion of your presentations and to audience questions. And to the audience, again, if you have questions, please feel free to submit them in the side panel uh, at any time where you see questions box. Um, so why don't I begin with uh, just inviting each of you in turn for just one minute. Any key responses to the good points Rob raised on each of your papers? Why don't we go in the same order of presentation? So, Linda? Yeah, I, I also really appreciated Rob's point about mapping our sort of academic exercise onto policymakers' needs. Uh, that's a, a great comment. I do want to um, circle back to the, the targeting versus mapping distinction. Uh, I, I absolutely agree that mapping can be, is fruitfully used for uh, the targeting of policies and programs. However, part of the impetus for this paper is I get asked to review a lot of household or person level machine learning informed targeting models that use 45, 60 features uh, to, to produce the model. Now, a targeting model, a household level targeting model that uses a feature set of that magnitude would be extraordinarily costly for an agency to implement because it would mean having a 60 question survey that they would need to um, ask each potential uh, potential beneficiary household, uh, which is, is you know, for some agencies that may be in their best interest, which is why we try to highlight the agency's objective function. But for most agencies, that's going to be prohibitively costly. Uh, so, you know, for, for uh, proxy means test targeting type models, a lean data set, a lean, sorry, a lean model is in the agency's, generally the agency's best interest because it's far more cost effective to, to implement. Now that said, there are important trade-offs between the predictive accuracy and the costliness. Uh, and, and that, again, is, is uh, something that the, the agency needs to define in terms of their objective function. So I agree there's nuance there, uh, but I, I, the distinction is, is important. Thanks, Linda. Yanya? Responses Hi, uh... to... Okay, uh, thank you for Rob's excellent comments. Uh, let me uh, uh, respond for his first two questions on me, uh, my presentation. The first one is about the uh, context uh, when NDVI should be used. Oh, 
I'm sorry, I don't know why I turned off my camera. And uh, uh, yes, I think you are right. So this advantage of NDVI is to uh, to uh, predict the uh, poverty measures among the subgroup of the poor communities. As uh, we mentioned, we, we know it's uh, in many cases, those are policymakers, uh, what kind of uh, policymakers actually care about. And uh, also it's more relevant to agriculture and the rural context than in the urban context. Also, it's important to understand the implicit uh, economic rationale behind the machine black box of machine learning. Uh, I think it's, uh, uh, so Chris Brown's presentation, I think it's uh, uh, complementary to my uh, presentation because in my presentation, our work, we only uh, use NDVI and nightlights. And Chris Brown's, we use uh, different uh, uh, data sets which capture different, uh, you know, uh, risk factors on uh, the outcome variable predict uh, uh, the, the response variable. So I think the pathway to move forward is to carefully select what uh, uh, data sites to use based on economic rationale. And uh, uh, also regarding to the sampling errors, I think that's an excellent question. Actually, I think it's uh, about measurement error and uh, uh, usually consumption expenditure is uh, noisier than asset index. That's uh, probably one reason that in most of the uh, analysis, we found that uh, the predictive power is higher for uh, asset index than consumption expenditure. Uh, that's related to your comments on measurement, uh, on what outcome variable to measure for this kind of study. So I think besides asset index, people have been using like a food security uh, score, etc. Uh, and uh, those are the uh, uh, indicators which are easy to measure and tend to have uh, lower measurement errors. I think it's probably more suitable for this kind of analysis. Thank you. Thanks very much, Yan Yan. Chris Brown, do you have any responses to comments Rob offered on your presentation? Um, actually, I wanted to just ask him, Rob, what, what was the point that you made on sampling error in small sample sizes? Well, um, of course, sample size uh, depends on the on the sample frame, right, and on what you need to design. So, uh, the, the 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 size of the the sample um, can it depends on the population size, but um, so it not necessarily is the small smallness of the sample is is gives you less accurate data, right? It may give you less observations for you to work with, right? But it not necessarily worse. So, what I was suggesting is you combine the sample size, right, with maybe limitation to the kind of analysis you do, with the sampling errors of the survey, right. So, uh, and particularly variables like poverty, uh, food insecurity, sort of there, there may not be the main uh, objective variable of the of the survey, right. So they may have rather big sampling errors. Uh, so that was the point I was trying to make. So there may be, and it applies to all the studies, right? So not like you have a 
poverty number in a particular uh, sub-area of, of the survey, uh, but there's probably a range around that confidence interval that's defined by the sampling area. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, you know, I guess that's my only comment right now. So maybe let me let me follow up on that point because I, I think Rob's good point about sampling error in small samples that uh, you know you're trying to fit these models to a sample prevalence that is a noisier estimate of the true population prevalence if you have a small sample than if you have a large sample so it's not surprising that you get worse fit. Parallel to that is a question not about sampling error, but about measurement error. There's a there's a rapidly growing literature that emphasizes how rife household survey data are with measurement error, in particular with non-classical measurement error. And that raises all sorts of questions because it means that assessment of predictive accuracy of these machine learning-based methods, where we're using the survey prevalence rates as the benchmark, we could be substantially understating their performance. It might be that the, the machine learning exercise is actually getting the population figure right, and the sample is wrong, the survey sample is wrong, because of measurement error, sampling error, both. What can be, over, what can be done to overcome the challenges of benchmarking predictions against error-ridden survey observations, or at least overcoming the reticence to embrace machine learning based methods because of understated goodness of fit. Any thoughts? Um, Lyndon, I suspect you've been giving this issue some thought. Chris, go ahead. I mean, yeah, maybe this is naive. The only, like, I don't see how you can solve the measurement error issue unless you just survey more households, right? Because like, each of the actual like prevalence estimates is actually like, you know, a weighted some across different households in a cluster right so i mean like i would think that you just need to include more households and then that should reduce the measurement error not i would say not that should reduce sampling error not measurement error right oh, okay okay right so like the actual households might be reporting incorrectly is that what you're getting at exactly exactly okay, okay. The, yeah. that's and and those errors are, are largest in relative size in the poorest households and the smallest farms, it appears in the literature. Okay, yeah. Well, of course, uh, maybe an interesting point within this literature is, is also uh, how the surveys are designed, right? So if you have complex uh, household surveys, the likelihood that uh, um, all types of consumption uh, are poorly measured and uh, we know when it comes to incomes, people, uh, when asked about, it, tend to lie about their incomes, particularly at the higher end, things like that. So, but if you take uh, what what could be um, an important step forward, uh, methods like the food insecurity experience scale, which FVO is now applying, which is basically an eight uh, binary uh, questionnaire, right? There's an eight questions, uh, just yes and no questions, and about a food security situation and to Food consumption scores also applied by other infusionet so go in that direction. Um, so that's easily implemented as long as you just focus on that, right? Of course, if there's a whole ton of other things uh, have to come into it. But then if we do that in a refined way, we may get uh, more accurate uh, estimates of the our dependent variable and uh, and can worry uh, more about okay, what are the risk factors and the causal 
um, factors that we would like to uh, bring into account when predicting uh, these numbers, right? And um, but uh, even then, that said, um, uh, then we can probably predict what's observed, right? And uh, so then the question is, okay, now how can that tell things about the future? And that's what's the point that was raised early on, on focusing also on how can we assess the risk factors so we can then assess, okay, that likely will lead to um, more poverty or less uh, uh, or more food insecurity in this particular context. We have a question from Gokul, Gokul Paudel. My apologies, Gokul, if I've mispronounced your name. Uh, I'll summarize his, his long question. Um, he he suggests that, uh, that that these methods are very important, but how important is feature selection to predict poverty? And what are the key features that have been considered in this literature using machine learning and remotely sensed uh, data? And relatedly, are latitude and longitude good features to predict poverty? Don't they just correlate with lots of other spatial data? Lyndon, I think this speaks to some issues you raised, and and Chris and and Yanyan, perhaps you can chime in afterwards with your thoughts. Thanks, Chris, and thanks for the um, the question. So this is this is one of the tensions that um, we highlight in the the paper I discussed. Feature selection can be entirely driven by the algorithm that one chooses, right? You can feed the entire data set, multiple data sets into the algorithm. And, you know, uh, given the algorithm's objective function, you're going to get a highly um, predictive feature set at, at the end of the day. Um, the, the question that we want tool developers to ask is, uh, so when it comes to targeting, you know, is this feature set one that can be turned into a survey where the data are easily observed, easily collected um, in, a, in a rapid and cost-effective manner? If it comes to mapping, uh, one of the questions you might ask about the feature set is, are, are these features determinants of, of structural poverty, long-term poverty, chronic poverty, malnutrition, or are they correlates of, of current or stochastic poverty? And this might be the difference between um, what someone's house is built out of, that would be a correlative of long-term and chronic deprivation versus uh, whether they ate meat last week. That would be a, a correlate of, of current or, or um, stochastic uh, poverty malnutrition. So uh, to answer your question, yeah, the features that can be completely uh, selected by the algorithm. We would encourage model developers to think carefully about the underlying welfare dynamics behind the features. I don't know if I've satisfactorily answered the question. Did I get everything? Yeah, that's terrific, thanks. Yan Yan, any thoughts? Uh, no, I don't have anything to add. Chris, do you have anything to add to Lyndon's response to Gokul's um, question? I have one request. I mean, you don't have to do this. Can you paste the question into chat so that I can like actually look at it? It's okay if you can't. Sure, it was in the Google Doc online. 
Actually, the, the question does ask about... Um, I just I just put it in there. Yeah, okay, so go cool. Um, like, to answer the last point, like latitude and longitude, I mean, you basically kind of already run. I don't think that they're very good features for prediction. Like, they literally work well, right? But what you're mentioning is important, which is that, like, they're really just getting at other, like, spatially correlated variables that are hidden to the model, right? So, like, it's not like people, you know, are poorer because they live at this particular latitude and longitude, right? It's that, like, there are some hidden variables that, you know, are actually, like, discriminating those people from wealthier regions, right? Um, so, like, ideally, right, we would just have, like, other features that make it so that latitude and longitude are not important, but we don't have those right now. Uh, for how important is feature selection? Like, it is relatively important, right? Because, like, you know, so you're going to have all these features. You're going to be fitting a model on all of that, those features, and that model will have parameters sort of proportional to the number of features. So unless you have a ton of data, you're generally going to be running into an overfitting issue. So you need to do some kind of variable selection, I think, um, either before fitting the algorithm or concurrently with it. Um, again, that concern is mitigated if you have a ton of data, but like we don't have a lot of survey data right now, right? Um, let's see. And then what are the key features that have been considered? I mean, yes, yeah, so the big ones have been like these like sort of satellite-based images, like satellite-based features. So you know, nightlight is one of the big ones, um, measurements of, you know, people's electricity usage, basically. And then, you know, the sort of vegetative indices, NDVI, SIF. I would, I would say those are the big ones that people have mostly looked at. And then in the random forest paper, we looked at some other ones like conflict data, market data, et cetera. But a lot of papers have used a lot of different features. And like, I would say that picking sort of reasonable features and assessing like what features are actually informative is like a pretty important task for the field. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Chris. So this, this transitions us to the last question, which segues to a presentation by Meta Bulamula uh, from Cornell, who will walk us through the website and the annotated code. Stephanie Cagone, and my apologies, Stephanie, if I've mispronounced your surname, she asks, what kind of services, systems, and software are used for maximum for machine learning modeling efforts? So uh, Meta is going to walk us through now the, uh, the, the project website from Cornell where you can find the various papers and presentations and annotated code. And she will briefly talk through the annotated code that's available to help users adapt the methods you've heard in, in this talk to their own applications. So over to you, Meta. Meta, you're, you're muted. Sorry about that. Okay, so. Hi, so here is the project website um, and you're gonna find like papers and presentations and the, the slides from today. So next slide. So you can just find briefly about the research team and a lot of the people that talked today. Next slide, please. 
Um, so we talked about different papers today, like predicting poverty and malnutrition for targeting, mapping, monitoring, and early warning. So that's there, even though it's not on the slide. And also the paper that Chris Brown talked about, the multivariate random forest prediction of poverty and malnutrition prevalence, that's also uh, on the website. Next slide, please. You will also be able to find the presentation for today and the recording from this webinar and the last webinar. Next slide. And here's some data sources. Not doesn't really reference this webinar today, but you can find different information from last one. Next slide, please. Okay, so there's also the code and the user guide. So Chris Brown talked about the code from his paper. And once you press on the first image here, there's like a code place. So you can click on that and that will lead you to the translational user guide. And this gives you both the Python code from the paper and also an annotated guide. And I'll show you just a little sneak peek of what that looks like. So next slide, please. So this is just how to use it. So you're just gonna download, there's a Word document and there's also a Python file. So the annotated document is a Word document and it has black text, which is just the annotations and the gray font is the code. You can obviously just delete all the annotations, but that's a lot of work. So just take the Python files and you can compile that there. So the annotations pretty much goes over what is going on in the code. So it kind of gives you a easy way to understand how what is happening and also how to recreate it. So what you should change and alter depending on your data set. Next slide, please. So here is the contemporaneous uh, forecasting and you have the annotated guide, which is on the left, and then the Python file that you can press. And you can just view it from the, the website itself. And as you can see, there's the black text I talked about and the gray text, which has the actual code. And it kind of gives you a description right before the code of what is going on and what you should change. Next slide. And finally, here's this sequential now casting, same thing, annotated guide and the Python file. And you have a different, obviously it's a different code and this will help you figure out what you need to change when you, when or if you reproduce this and use different data sets and different information. And it will be very helpful when trying to understand the code and also reproduce it. Thank you. Thanks very much, Amanda. Let me get the webcam up. The, so let me just encourage people to go to the website uh, to be able to see the presentations and papers you heard about today. Let me remind you the event recording and slides will be available on the Food Security Portal's website as well as the Cornell Project website. And let me just close by thanking again our speakers and discussants for their excellent presentations and terrific remarks and to the audience for attending the event. 
Have a great day, everyone. Take good care. Bye-bye.